The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Krista Vance, mother and author of Meet Jamie Now. Uh, her book is a Meet Jamie Now, a li- and sort of the subtitle of this is A, love, a Life Free of Autism. Uh, and described as an uplifting true story of overcoming adversity that will have us all cheering. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Krista. Thank you. All right, so Krista, your story obviously is about autism uh, and how it affects you, your family, uh, the lives of all of you, and it is an inspiring story, and we do want to talk about it. Um, but first, uh, autism, just you know, to give us a little bit of some of the statistics surrounding autism, about how many families are affected or how many children are affected by autism in this country. I know there are some CDC, CDC, CDC statistics. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That's a good question because... Really, I don't know anymore. <laughs> I thought right. I knew when I wrote the book, and I was I, I think it's, you know, one in, uh, you know, 68 or something. It was yeah. one in 99. Yeah. And now, re- really recently, somebody told me it was like one in four. So, okay. you know, it's, it's, it's ever-changing all the time, but it's a, a high percentage. Yeah, and it's it's a high percentage, and it seems to be getting more and more. And when I was uh, getting ready for the show, I looked up some of these statistics, and I guess one of the things they had mentioned was that, uh, you know, we have better diagnostic tools, so it's not necessarily that we have more kids with autism, but we're able to identify them. Um, all right, so but we want to hear your story, and obviously it's compelling. It's about uh, your son, Jamie, who is a twin. Mm-hmm. So um, let's kind of start from... From the beginning, you had in vitro fertilization, and then twins are born, and uh, I'm going to let you tell the story. Oh, let's see. Uh, I'll try to tell bits and pieces of the story, but it began um, when Jamie was about a year old, and he was hospitalized with a, with a breathing issue that he had from prematurity being intubated for too long of a period. Uh, uh, helped his um, trachea be, you know, um, uh, a little bit lazy in breathing, and so he got a he co- he contracted a pretty heavy sickness, bronchitis, and put him in the intensive care for uh, two weeks. And um, from that from that point on, um, after surviving that, uh, uh, he left the hospital being a drug addict and. Um, so I had to give him drugs to get off the drugs. And anyways, it was just, uh, you know, uh, um, kind of a pretty intense uh, couple months afterwards after the hospital. 
But, you know, he recovered and we moved on with life, so I thought. And, um, and then about, probably about, uh, another six months later, um, you know, I noticed, uh, we were, when we were giving him more medicine for his, uh, problem with his throat and his stomach, and, um, the medicine seemed to work and keep him out of the hospital. The doctors really scared me to, you know, in giving him the medicine because, you know, we didn't want to go through that again with him. And, um, so I, uh, gave him the medicine as directed and, um, and then over time I just noticed that, uh, uh, his hair started falling out and, um, in clumps. And then I also noticed at the same time that, uh, his lack of, um, uh, eye contact, lack of. Um, well, did you have him, Krista? I mean, you had—he's a twin, so you yeah. had his. It, yeah, I had the other compare. I I was able to compare each day because Jack was, uh, you know, didn't have the hospitalization. He was normal. Yeah. Uh, so how did you feel? I mean, when you have this, you, you know, you've got the twins, and as you say, you know, sometimes I think when you have a just a, a single child. This can be a lot of denial. Well, this is natural and things will change because you don't have someone of the same age to compare mm-hmm. him or her right. to. Well, I was blessed with Jack, I guess. And uh, he, I, you know, I mean, it was just from the beginning, I think, from the hospitalization, it was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, from that point on. And, um, you know, I probably, I, I probably just, you know, felt, I mean, the comparison was, getting, you know, wider and wider between them. I mean, Jack was slowly, you know, doing his thing and pointing and, you know, you know, words, a lot of words and talking. Jack was very talkative and Jamie had been previous to his sickness. He was he was talking at a very young age and then when he was hospitalized, he still talked after that. And but then it just started going away, going away, going away and then completely disappeared after, you know, about six or nine months more. But as he was t- talking less and less, because, yeah. you know, we want, you know, your story is important for other parents, obviously, who have kids mm-hmm. who may be suffering from autism, but just to be able to be aware of what the symptoms are, because you're saying like six to nine months, which is a long time, uh, are you in touch with your pediatrician or how, you know, because now yeah, your child... Yeah, I mean, when his hair first started falling out, you know, I called them, and, I mean, I called the... the uh, Several doctors, the pediatrician, the, uh, the people who did the surgery, the people who I was dealing with, the, the pulmonologist, the gastroenterologist, all those people. I mean, I kept, you know, telling them that these were the things that are happening, and they said, you know, well, it's not. And I said, well, is it because the drugs I'm giving them, you know, because what I'm what I'm feeding both the boys are eating the same, they live in the same environment. And we're doing the same thing. One of them, his hair is falling out, who's taking the drugs. The other one is normal, you know. And they just, um, you know, kind they of... They ignored maybe, you? Yeah, Did they, they dismiss you and ignore you? They, basically, yeah, they dismissed what I was saying, that it had nothing to do with anything. Just his hair was just falling out. So then... So his hair is falling out. He's talking less. Mm-hmm. And are there other physical characteristics that, that, that you know, I mean, that you notice besides not speaking? Uh, um, I felt like his, you know, his coordination was 
kind of going by the wayside. Like it was very coordinated, crawling, walking at, you know, just before he went to the hospital, he was doing all these things. And um, so uh, his social contact, too, with... It was like he was going into his own world. He, you know, it was just me and Jack or... Um, you know, I'd take him out, and he would would just stare sometimes and have no responses to things. And Jack would have, oh, what's that? Or, you know, talking or, you know, having emotions. Or, oh, wow, look at the plane or, you know, things like that. But Jamie basically just became very non-social. Uh, you know, you touch to him, like, see, so he had very high sensory, like, if you touched him or grabbed him too quickly, he would really react. So touching, um, high sensory issues, hearing, they it's almost like they could hear. Everything was, you know, tenfold. Like what I could hear, he could hear ten times uh, So there's this kind of this super sensitivity to stimuli. That, um, what about your husband? I mean, was this something that you two noticed together and discussed or... Uh, how you know how did it work within the family? Um, well, that was a difficult thing. I think is that um, you know you have you're working and um, you know I mean I, yeah we definitely communicated and stuff, but it was you know he he was just a little more and, and you always get this right in, in couples that oh oh it's okay everything's going to be okay you know everything's fine. You know, they just went through this, and everything's fine. And, you know, he was aware, but um, it was more just me really, you know, noticing. And, you know, I talked to my mom about it, and I had her watch him. He started doing repetitive behaviors over and over. I would watch him, you know, do three things in a row a hundred times over. So, so at what point did you say, I mean, you, your husband, it sounds like obviously he was in de- more denial. Right, yeah. Um, and you were kind con- trying to face it or at least trying to address the issue and you talked to your mom um, and had her observe. So what was the turning point when you said, you know, the doctors aren't helping, at least from what you've described, and your husband's thinking it's going to get better. What did you do? I mean, did you, at, at some point you must have said, I, something else has to be done mm-hmm. to take well, care I of it. you know. To, uh, basically, I just felt you know, inside me that I needed to, I mean, I realized that I lost him. I, I, lo- I realized I lost him one, one afternoon, and uh, I knew that he was not the child that I brought into the world. And, and so it just, like, fueled me, you know. It just He just fueled me, and I just, like, oh, my gosh, I, I have to get this, this child back. I, you know, and then it was just, like, the energy that I had, and, just a search. I mean, I, I read, I went to the library, I went to every bookstore, you know, I talked to people. Um, really, that's how it began because uh, uh, back then, I, you know, I just, I really wasn't like a very, you know, you, you couldn't, I mean, you could probably, but people just, it wasn't well known about Google or anything. You know, they didn't have any, hardly any information um, on the internet at that time. And, um, so it would be different today because you wouldn't have to physically do all of what you had to do. You say go to the library, exactly. read books. You just yeah. go online and you've got a lot of information, right? Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, the thing is, is what, what I grasped onto was, and I found, which I was really grateful, is in actually in a bookstore and then um, 
in the library, I found a magazine and I found a book that were, became my Bibles. On this particular book was written by a doctor, and uh, he had he just basically gave you the formula for you know figuring out autism and you know the test to run and et cetera, et cetera. And then this magazine talked about. Um, Talked about what are the thing, what are the top ten things you could do uh, about autism, and so the, those basically just those two articles. Those are the things that took me to a lot of places. There were ten things. There was one family that they had mentioned had recovered their son, which is the Kaufman family, um, who now run the Option Institute back in Massachusetts, and there they healed their son of autism. And when I when I found that out that I said there is somebody else who healed their son of autism. It is a possibility. So it was just that so, one well, family. So jumping at, did we find, did you, you were going to doctors who finally did diagnose your son, yes. diagnosed Jamie and said he has autism, treated him with what, the conventional method, whatever it was, or treatment, which wasn't working? Yeah, I mean, the conventional treatment is basically, you know, therapy, uh, speech, language therapy, occupational therapy, you know, uh, different um, things in that order. But what I did instead, which what I learned and kind of my history of background of diet and so forth, I just, I went to the inside of the body because I felt that what had changed happened to him inside. It wasn't an outside condition. It was from the inside. So I was going to work instead of from the outside in, from the inside out. And that's when I started learning more and more about diet for autism. Uh, I learned about detoxification. I learned about intestinal tract difficulties. In so you're talking about children. alternative medicine. Or yes. Yeah. Because so you... were, that was the only thing I, like I just, like the, the speech therapy and the OT therapy, they're all wonderful. And I, I met insanely amazing, talented people. But the, 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 the doctors, um, you know, the pediatricians, they, they had no information for me besides, you know, putting them in a, in a place um, that they would take care of them and most likely eventually drug them or, um, you know, just, te- just giving me no hope, basically, telling me that there's nothing well, is I that, do about Because now you're talking about alternative medicine and, and people or parents who are listening to this are probably not... Uh, getting that kind of treatment for their child who has or has been diagnosed with autism. It's more conventional Western medicine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you are saying that you found a treatment, and is there a name for it that has really cured your son, has cured Jamie of autism? Well, it wasn't just one treatment. So it was a, it was a multiple treatment. But it was, you know, um, basically... Diet, uh, uh, heavy metal detoxification, and intestinal tract cleaning up of yeast and yeast overgrowth in the intestinal tract. And, and how long did it take? Um, I mean, with the, I mean, as you see, it, it took a total of about three and a half to four years to to get him to talk again. And but, when, we, when um, he first began talking, I mean, that must have, was it one of those kind of miracle things? He just yeah, it started was, to talk. It was a miracle. Yeah, it was. It was. It was incredible. He actually said a a sentence, you know, and then you know, it wasn't. 
It wasn't. It was. It wasn't all this. I mean, he all of a sudden said a sentence, and then it was just then slow, slow to come back. But within, you know, slow, and then started off slow, and then it just started coming, coming faster and faster and faster. Krista, so how old is Jamie now? It. How old is Jamie? Yeah, he's sixteen. Okay, so he's sixteen years old now. Has uh-huh. he reached the point where he is? Free of autism, does he have to continue with the alternative medicine? I'm going to ask you three questions in a row. And is he totally um, recovered in the sense that he can do the same things that his brother Jack can do, sports-wise, intellectually, connecting with people? Mm -hmm. Um, Is he exactly this? You know, has the same kind of abilities? Uh, Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's the. The beautiful thing is, is uh, the two of them together is, I mean, last night at dinner, I mean, they just make me laugh. I mean, Jamie is a straight-A student, so he's, so is Jack. Um, they really push themselves and pride themselves in getting good grades. Um, Jamie and Jack play doubles in tennis, and they're, uh, they want to be professional tennis players, and they um, they function. Jamie functions completely normal in any crowd. I mean, he's he's actually cool. You know, he's cool uh, around his friends. And um, why wouldn't yeah. other parents? Why wouldn't anyone listening to this who has a child who's autistic? You know, uh, take the the path that you took and and uh, embrace this alternative medicine that you described. Right. Um, you know, well, why a don't lot of, they? You know, I've been talking to parents and helping other parents out for years now, and um, you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons sometimes behind it, and sometimes, you know, it's 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 a very difficult, uh, you know, diagnosis, and it's very difficult uh, with these children, and how you know, a lot of times they don't sleep. I mean, my son Jamie didn't sleep for four years and three months through the night, you know, and, and other parents have that same thing. So they're exhausted. Yeah. It's a lot of work. And, you know, it's hard to find, you know, you, you think you trust, you know, your MDs. And some of them some of them are amazing. And, you know, I'm not at all putting, you know, certain doctors down at all or don't go to your, you know, your doctor. But it's like some of them are in, incredible and know about, you know, what to do with this. But, you know, it, it's you need the right people around you. You need the right group around you to support your belief. And I think that's what I did, and that's what I tried to help other parents do is try to find which road that is for, for them and their child so they can have the energy. I try to help them with the energy and the motivation and the enthusiasm to know that there is a possibility that they can recover their children from So autism. as I understand it, you're a member of Autism Today, and I want to mm-hmm. mention these FEAT, F-E-A-T, Families for Effective Autism Treatment, mm-hmm. and th- that you support the Autism Research Institute. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of places that parents can turn to, as you're describing. Yeah. Also, your, uh, more information, too, of a website to go to is the other, uh, oh, no, the uh, what is no? That's not your website. That's somebody else's website. So, is there a website? My we website can... is uh, healingautism dot com. Okay, healingautism dot com. Yeah, and there's a lot of information, and you can buy the book 
there, and you can also download it through Amazon there on the website. And, um, yeah, it has all the information, and it has, you know, all the doctors I use, all the supplements I used. I mean, the story is not only just of the recovery, but it's what I went through, what my marriage went through, you know, what we went through together. Um, and are you still together, you and your husband? Yes. Yep. <laughs> Amazingly. <laughs> because, yes. of course, as, as a social worker, I mean, I, these kinds of, when these things happen to parents, I mean, at least, and I'm making this statistic up, but half of them end up splitting up because they can't endure all that, you, uh, that you've been talking about in this past half hour. That's right. um, so, what yeah, we mean? actually yeah. worked with a social worker during the process, and she was uh, that. And I talk about her in my book, and you know, basically helped us be able to make it through because it was difficult to put a lot of strain on our relationship. And I think the statistics for marriage with autistic kids is about for the divorce rate. I think is about like eighty percent. Yeah. Well, just starting with the first thing you said, if you have a child who doesn't sleep all night, right. the whole family doesn't sleep all night. Exactly. And if you're sleep-deprived, you can start with that. It's yeah. very difficult to function in any relationship if you haven't had any sleep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you're talking about years of that kind of behavior. How did it affect your, uh, how did it affect your other son, Jack? Because, obviously, he's part of this family, yeah. and you know, the concentration is on his brother, uh, helping, you know, trying to get him well. So how about Jack? What happened to him during this whole thing? So Jack um, is, you know, that's why I call him my ray of sunshine in the book, because he was like my rock, you know. He was like, the, you know, the one I could compare Jamie to, the one I knew that, that he was trying to help his brother do this or do that or, you know, to get him to take a vitamin, you know, I'd always use Jack to get him to do it or I would do it or we would do it together. And, I mean, he was just by my side and helping me, you know, to do all the things that we needed to do for Jamie. And, you know, even though at times, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't let him eat Doritos because all of his friends wanted to eat them, but because we were on this specific diet, we needed to do it together and we needed you know, to be strong for Jamie. and uh, Did Jack you know, ever resent the attention and, that you gave to, to, to You know, Jamie? I know that's a great question, and I'm blessed with this son who just absolutely is like, because he is, because we, jo- I mean, Jamie jokes. Jamie's like the jokester, and he's like, oh, yeah, like he got his, he, Jamie has braces, and Jack doesn't have braces. Jack's teeth are like perfectly fine. Jack's never been in the hospital. Jamie's been in the hospital, you know, 37 times. And uh, um, it's just, you know, Jamie got his braces tightened once, and I actually took a video of it, and he was just like, everyone hates me. You know, the dentist, I mean, the you know, orthodontist, he just hates me. I don't know what, what he's thinking. He tells, you know, tells me to grind steak together in a blender so I can drink it because my teeth hurt so bad. And then and he's like, and look at Jack, like, Jack's like chewing gum or something. He's like, look at him. He's just, he's got the perfect teeth. He's got the perfect hair. He's got the perfect this. But it's more like, and Jack just loves it and laughs. And, you know, they're, they're like, they're best friends. And the fact that I really, I never once, I mean, fortunately had, you know, anything major, major thing with Jack. And he's just always been there and still is today. And the, the, Beautiful thing is they're, you know, they're, 
they just like go off of each other in so many amazing ways and supportive and just laugh at each other and have a blast as brothers and the fact that they're playing doubles together and they won state individuals and doubles um, for their high school team. I mean, it's just it's just been a really great road for them and and they're still very close and we have been through so much together that there's just, you know, we have a bond that um you know, is unique. So, well, it, I mean, it's, we have a minute left. So uh-huh. you have just touched on this. It is an incredible story. It is <laughs> uplifting as you describe it. But for the nuances and the details, we can suggest that people buy the book, and you can buy it, I'm assuming, bookstores everywhere and online. Meet Jamie Now, A Life Free of Autism. Yeah, and um, we have a coupon, too. I think it's for free shipping right now, and I can give you that coupon number if you want me to. It's just Radio 21. If if you put in Radio 21 when you check out at HealingAutism.com, you get um, free shipping and I think maybe 10% off the book too. So. All right, great. Terrific. And uh, HealingAutism.com is another website that you can go to. Uh, Krista Vance, mother and author. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you very much. It was great. We're going to take a short break right now until uh, my next guest. Um, And I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me uh, this morning, my next guest is television comedy writer Kristen Newman, who has written for several TV hits, uh, The 70s Show, How I Met Your Mother, but now she just published her own memoir, 
called What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding. And as I understand it, what Kristen was doing was traveling around the world. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. So the question is, Kristen, why did you write this book to just make everybody like feel bad, your friends? They were <laughs> having babies and stuck in the house and watching TV, and you're traveling around the world having romance. Sort of the opposite, sort of just to make myself feel better. Um, You know, I I wasn't ready to settle down and have kids when everybody else was, and I worried about that. I worried that it made me me a little broken, that maybe it meant that there was sort of something wrong with me, and I did want to have kids someday, and I knew that that, that, you know, if I wanted that someday, it was going to really start needing to happen pretty soon as I get deep into my 30s. Uh, but I wasn't ready, and so I just kind of gave up on wanting it and decided to enjoy what I could enjoy about being single that all of my married and uh, breeding friends, you know, were missing, which was freedom to, uh, to, to run around and, and see the world a bit, and, and, you know, the dollars that didn't have to get spent on braces I could use to buy gas for my car if I was going on a local trip or, or a plane ticket. And I would have these little crises every so often where I would think, what have I been doing while everyone's been building families and finding husbands? I'm, here I am between two great trips again, between two TV jobs, between two boyfriends, and I've been, this is exactly where I was 10 years ago. And so I felt a little bit like I wasn't guilty? moving forward. Why do you think you felt guilty? Because it sounds like, I mean, you, you had planned ahead, yes, I want to have kids, husband, someday, and, but not now, but you were you really enjoying it, or were you feeling guilty? Were you had two boyfriends, and you had, you know, as I, sex, adventure, romance, all that kind of stuff, seeing all these great places, great job. But it sounds like you kind of, there was that thing in the back of your head, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, or maybe I shouldn't be enjoying it as much, or what? Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, there was, there was the 60s and 70s where women suddenly were like, let's not get married young, let's push it off and have adventure and career and not feel guilty. And then there's been this backswing where, where women are getting married earlier again. I had somebody in Hollywood pitch me a book that they wanted me to adapt. The book was called The Panic Years, and it was, quote-unquote, about being on the wrong side of 25 without a ring. I was like 36 when they pitched me this book in single, and I'm like, what happened? 25? How did this number happen again? So I feel like, you know, I wrote this book to be entertaining and funny. I'm a comedy writer. I wanted to write some funny stories that people would enjoy reading. But if there's any message to be taken away from it, I hope that it's in the writing of it, even though I sat down to write down these funny hedonistic adventures uh, that I felt maybe a little bit like uh, was me chasing my tail in some ways. At the end of it, I realized that it wasn't. At the end of it, I realized that it wasn't a precursor to marriage, what I was doing. It was my life, and it was great. And what I got from being a woman, especially a woman traveling alone, which is my big message, girls, take a trip by yourself, because you learn and change and get this sense of confidence, because it's so terrifying. And And you go out there and you come home and you suddenly can go go on a date or to a job interview and be more confident. Yeah, well, it seems to me that they don't take trips by themselves. If they're going to go anywhere, the, the risky, you know, or what they would consider risky, they go with a girlfriend. They don't go alone. 
I mean, a lot of women do. In other countries, they don't. You know, you go on the road, and there's all of these women from Australia and New Zealand and Germany and Switzerland traveling the world by themselves for a year, and maybe they yes. stop for a month and, and work for a month in this country and a work for a month in another country and take language classes for two weeks in that country. They do it. Um, they do but do I, it, and I wonder why they do it. I, wanted to, I, I met uh, my boyfriend and I were traveling in the Arctic Circle, and we met a woman just as you're describing. I think she was in marketing. She was from... Uh, uh, Poland, actually, from uh-huh. Krakow, and she was traveling by herself, just as you're describing, and then she traveled with us a little bit, but then she went on to next, and I mean, all these, and if she'd been traveling with a girlfriend, it would have been a very different experience. So what keeps us back here? I mean, how old were you, first of all? I, I want to get just a time frame when you did this. Well, the, 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 the book covers trips. Each chapter is a trip, and it covers trips starting from when I was 26. But my first solo trip by myself that was really kind of starting the new life was 31. Thirty-one. Okay, so mm-hmm. where were what first trip? What did you do? What was, I mean, were you scared? I mean, did you have it planned out? <laughs> yeah, my only regret in my life, really, at that point, had been, um, and maybe still, had been that I had never lived in another country. I really wished I had done that. And I, as a TV writer, I get two or three months off a year, sort of like a teacher schedule. And so I decided to get an apartment, an apartment in Buenos Aires, and take five days a week of Spanish and three days a week of tango, and get an Argentine cell phone, and pretend I lived there. And I went down there, and the first night I was terrified. I didn't know if it was safe to go outside. I was like, what am I doing in the bottom of the world alone, not knowing anyone? But I, you know, had a friend of a friend who knew somebody whose cousin's sister was living down there. And I contacted her, and I met people through my Spanish class, and I met people through tango, and suddenly met the locals. And I got an Argentine boyfriend, and I met his friends and his family, which is, by the way, my favorite part about a romance with the locals. They bring you into the local scene. And it was a magical two and a half months. And by the way, it cost less to do that, including plane fare, than it did for me to stay in my house in Los Angeles. So... You know, I rented out my house, and I got on the plane, and I went down there and lived for almost nothing. And it was this magical, magical time where I was happier than I'd ever been in my life, and I came home knowing I could do that. And it changed who I was to everyone else. It changed who I was to myself, and uh, Argentina is in my heart forever. I've been there three times now. Yeah, it's a great city. Well, Buenos Aires is a great yeah. city. Uh, good. Uh, and your boyfriend, what happened to him? Well, we, we continue to see each other off and on for about seven years. He's in three chapters of the book. It's a spoiler if I tell you entirely. But, yes. um, but I will say that, um, that we're still really great friends. And, I, you know, I ended up one year at Semana Santa on his family's Arabian horse, Campo, five hours outside of the city. And, you know, at his friend's weddings and at his grandmother's deathbed. Um, and he was at my house in Los Angeles for Thanksgiving. And, um, and he just brought me into this whole um, this whole world down there to see how families and friends and and the world works down there and that's why I love you know there's a, there's a lot of sexy romances in the book um, and and some people might think that uh, they want more of a message about something bigger but really to me the the best way to connect with a country and to connect with um, with a person you know with, with the sex. people of the country is a romance. <laughs> And uh, and that's what I got out of him, and I think he got that out of me, too, when he came here. And, and, you know, we weren't meant to be. He was almost a priest. You know, I'm an atheist. It didn't work out. But, uh, but you know, I, I mean, he's in my heart, and his family is, too. 
Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, just one of the many stories, and it's true, we don't want to give away all the stories because you want to whet people's appetite, obviously. Okay, so Buenos Aires, why did, actually, why did you pick South America? I mean, was there any reason? Like if someone's reading your book, they might think, well, you know, this is, I mean, it's inspirational to do exactly what you did for the reasons that you did, besides, um, you know, the book is entertaining, but why Argentina, why South America? Well, first of all, there's a bigger question, which is there are countries that are wonderful to travel alone as a woman, and there are countries that are wildly depressing slash maybe dangerous to travel alone as a woman. I'm focused more on the depression because I'm a comedy writer, so we struggle with that issue. Uh, so, you know, don't go to Santorini. Everyone's honeymooning. Don't go to... Italy, they'll either sexually assault you or you'll be around honeymooners. Uh, You need to go to the places where single people are traveling. South America, New Zealand, Australia, Southeast Asia, these are the places. And by the way, they're the cheaper places, too, where you can really spend some time because it doesn't cost as much. And uh, I live in Southern California and wanted to work on my Spanish. uh, And I had heard wonderful things about Argentina and the sort of European nature of Buenos Aires, which is very true, although it's really... Latin, too, which is the best thing about it, that combination. Um, and it just kind of captured my imagination, and it felt somehow like a doable city. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I understood that I could go there and figure it out because it was still a cosmopolitan city. I'm from a big city, so I kind of understood it. Um, although when I went back subsequent times, I tried to get out of Buenos Aires and went down into Bariloche and Patagonia and Ushuaia and the wine country where it was a little quieter, um, which is now kind of the way I like to vacation, get out of the cities. Yeah. Well, it's easier to go to a big, sophisticated city, as you said, and even Spanish is, if, even if you're just learning it, it's an, you can kind of get by uh, more than, let's say, if you went to uh, Sure. Russia and there's a lot of or, expats there, too. It's, you know, yeah. Half of my friends were people from uh, English-speaking countries, not just the U.S., but a lot of English-speaking countries, and, and I got into that world, too, which was comforting. Kristen, where would you, what so would you say was the most difficult city? The most, like, the city that you found, you know, like, that you went to and it wasn't quite as easy to get along and get around as a single person, as a single woman? Well, China. China and Tibet are, you know, really, really difficult. I, I, I come to every country with the idea that, you know, nothing is wrong the way that they do it. It's just culturally different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all, we all do our things our different ways. What's By the end of China, Tibet? I just felt like they do things wrong. This is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> right, so and, Tibet, uh, what and do they you, do wrong and why is it exhausting? Let's take Tibet, China. Uh, well, there is, you know, there's a sense, first of all, there's no sense of personal space. So everyone's always crowding, pushing jostling, jiggling, you're the sucker if you don't push to the front of the line. The the way you get on a bus is you push over old ladies and you walk over their heads. That's how you do it. And the old (laughs) ladies think you're dumb if you don't. Um, There's just a lot of spitting on the floor of restaurants. There's a lot of public farting and burping that isn't considered rude there. Um, there, There's just a lot of uh, working together to do some piece of paperwork that should take three seconds, that takes 10 hours because everybody doesn't want to stick their head up and take leadership. They are kind of trained to work as a group. Um, It's exhausting. There's a a lot of rudeness and a lot of that. And that sounds so xenophobic and terrible, but that was my experience. And then getting around Tibet is just so, it's so, um, it's so clenched down on by the Chinese government that you can't just stroll around. You kind of have to have a guide that has paperwork for every temple you want to enter, every city you want to enter, because the Chinese government are filming everything and, and pushing down and impressing Tibet so much. So there's just a lack of freedom. The begging is really, 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 really the most intense I've ever seen anywhere um, there also. And, and so that kind of, you know, that kind of gets heavy. 
um, I had a hard time there. I, I'm so glad I went, but, uh, but that was hard. Yeah, I, I actually, as I, you're describing it, I remember I haven't been to Tibet, but in, I think it was in Beijing, but it was in China, and you described kind of the dirtiness. Like, I remember a mother with a young baby taking off her diaper in a public park in a city, maybe it was Beijing, and letting her defecate in the flower pot in the, in the public park. You know, yeah, I mean, that's what you, they do. They have the baby pants are just, they, a lot of the times they don't even wear diapers, they just have, the baby pants have slits. Yeah. And then the babies are trained to just squat on the sidewalk. And, uh, and, you know, in a dinner party, they put like a puppy pad down on the floor and the babies go over and they go on the puppy pad in the middle of the dinner party. It's just a really different approach that's really <laughs> off-putting. <laughs> a different approach to child rearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, all right. So let's go. And we've been to Tibet, China with you and Buenos Aires. Where are we going to go next? Well, I want to talk about Iceland. That's a weird, yes. great place. I have been to Iceland, and I loved it. And Wasn't never, it beautiful? Yes. yes. It's and so I, beautiful. And they're such I, weirdos. I love them so much there. The people, they love to tell you that it's stereotypical to say that they all believe in fairies and gnomes and trolls and ghosts. <laughs> but then you go to the uh, tourism agency in Reykjavik, and you pick up a map, and there are little drawings all over the map. And there's a castle to show you where you can see a castle. And there's a puffin to show you where you can see a puffin colony. And then you see a drawing of a ghost. And you think, I'm going to look at the legend. I wonder what this ghost drawing means. And then you look and it says, haunted region. And then there's a drawing of a troll ogre thing. And you're like, I wonder what that means. And you look at the legend and it says, troll habitat, habitation. And they believed these things. There was, a, there was a famous road that they were building through the middle of the country. You probably remember there was just a big ring road that goes around the entire island. Yes. But in the center of the country, um, it's where we sent our astronauts to learn how to walk on the moon. It's just barren and treeless and rocky. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they wanted to build a road straight through the middle of the country so you didn't have to drive all the way around. And they were building this road straight without a single building or human in sight. No problem for the road. But then they got to a pile of rocks, which is, I think, as you know, Catherine, where fairies and gnomes live in the rocks. So they brought in a medium. They brought in a medium to talk to the fairies and gnomes and ask if it was all right to move the pile of rocks. The fairies and gnomes apparently said no. And so they made the road go around the pile. This is great. I love this stuff. Yeah, I do too. I love the story. I love your story. And you were by yourself. Who did you meet? Where did you? I mean, I think Iceland is one of those places where you, you know, you mentioned going back to Buenos Aires several times or Argentina, but you really, there's just so much to do in Iceland. And Iceland is green and Greenland is ice. I agree, and it's gorgeous. It is so, so beautiful and easy, and there's there's no one there, so you can just show up without a single plan, and you can get a place to sleep and a boat to get on wherever you want. Same with New Zealand. I loved it for that. You can just flow, and there's there's no – everybody's always got space for you. I actually went to Iceland with my girlfriend – um, and she's mar- she was married at the time, but she had been my single girl travel buddy, and she had been trying to get pregnant for about a year and was having a really hard time and kind of needed a break. So she and I went to Iceland together, and uh, it was a different vibe because she was waking up every morning to pee on a stick and take her temperature and, you know, had been working on the fertility of it all. Things were kind of heavy for her, and I was kind of trying to be with this boyfriend that I had had uh, come back to for a second time, and it wasn't quite working out. And so Iceland was a lot for us about um, talking about timing and how, you know, she had kind of wished that she met her husband later so she could have had more adventures. 
she wanted, wished that she could have gotten pregnant when she wanted to, and it was taking over a year. You know, I, I was trying to get back together with this guy who I had blown off years earlier because I wasn't ready, and I was ready now, but he had sort of moved on in ways, and, and we spent that trip talking a lot about timing, and it's all this space and all of these big waterfalls, and it was this kind of just... Uh, magical place to just think about where you were in the world. Also, I loved Iceland because everyone asked us if we were going to see Bjork because that's all Americans know about Iceland and we made fun of them. And then in the airport on the way home, we saw Bjork. (laughs) So that was exciting. (laughs) That's very exciting. Okay. So now we've we've been to Iceland. We've been to Buenos Aires, Tibet, China. Uh, Let's one more place. And then as I understand it, you are getting married soon or you did get married. I got married last week. uh, What happened to you? (laughs) I know. I know. It's a spoiler for the book, but but today uh, my new husband and I are flying to New York to do uh, some events for the book launch, which just came out yesterday. And he's calling it our honeymoon junket. (laughs) <laughs> that's romantic sort of instead of a honeymoon it is it is so how did you meet him well maybe let's why you know kind of finish the interview up with you how did you meet him and how did he, at some point you decide okay now I'm ready to I've had all these experiences I've at this point I think I've done what I want to do or he, did you just meet him and then everything you decided okay I'll I'm ready to get married yeah no I mean I decided that you know there was there was a trip to New Zealand and I would say gosh maybe 2009 or so, um, and I went there to kind of escape a big work heartbreak. A show had gone away that I had uh, created, and I was, you know, running away. I went for three weeks. I ended up staying for six weeks. It was this magical, you know, lovely, lovely trip where people just took me in, and I paid for a place to stay for six nights out of six weeks because they were just so friendly there. And um, But I was sitting on a beach one day, you know, after swimming with dolphins in the morning and going whale watching and sitting underneath glacier mountains on turquoise water and, and just kind of feeling like, I've done this. I've done a lot of magical experiences by myself, and it would be nice to have someone there. It then took about, you know, four years, <laughs> three or four <laughs> years to find that person uh, who would be the right one. So, you know, you don't snap your fingers. That's the thing about timing, too, is you can decide when you're ready for something, but the world doesn't necessarily give you things on your schedule. So, yeah, about three years ago, I was introduced by a mutual friend. We were, were both writers. I was introduced by a writer, and uh, he has two kids, and he was newly divorced, and he, you know, was going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and just kind of getting back into adventuring because his kids were starting to get into the age where where he could do that, and, and now he was divorced, so they were with their mom sometimes, and so he and I started adventuring together, and, uh, and now we live in a house that the neighborhood kids call the Cinderella house, so it's this big Victorian, it's sort of perfect. <laughs> it sounds perfect, but uh, what, it, what was it, I mean, if you hadn't done all that you had done, you know, and all your travels and the experiences, you probably wouldn't have met or at least connected with your husband and and. Wouldn't you say? I mean, it was all... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I definitely... I say that I had to travel as far to find a nice guy in my own town as I had to travel to find Father Juan or Oleg or Cristiano or any of the, you know, any of the foreign romances that I had. And it's true. I'm, you know, living with a man and two kids and their dog and my cat. And, you know, I, I ran away from people with kids. I ran away from having my own kids. I was afraid of, you know... Of, of the limit on my freedom. And I felt like I, if I hadn't gotten to fully express that freedom and the desire to do all of that and, and, and getting to do all of that, 
and also seeing the, the kind of the bad side of, of that coin too, the loneliness, the worry, um, all of those things that come with it, you know, um, I wouldn't be ready for this. And there's the negative sides to being married too, right? The things that you give up. Um, but I think I needed to really understand that there wasn't one road that makes you happy. There's, there's, there's pluses and minuses to both roads and, uh, and I, you know, just kind of got ready for the set of pluses and minuses that come with this road. So, how about children? Have you ever? Are you? Do you consider having children? I mean, now that you're married, or yeah, I mean, we'll see. We're old people, so we'll see if it happens. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I write in the book that I uh, that I froze my eggs a few years ago, uh, sort of, and I was always open to adopting, so not that worried about my biology. But I figured maybe some man wouldn't be, and so. I did that a few years ago, which felt really great. Felt like starting a 401k, you know, like I was taking care of myself. Um, and that was fantastic. Uh, and it led, of That's course, of course I got a boyfriend just as I started doing it. Do- so I would inject myself with fertility drugs in the morning and then have protected sex with my boyfriend later in the evening. And you, you think to yourself, might there be an easier way? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it seems to me, you know, I wonder, why don't more women do that, freeze their eggs? I mean, what the money. You, it's so expensive. It's, how expensive is it? It's like eleven or twelve thousand dollars. It's crazy, and that's Up the one cycle. Then you have to keep maintaining the eggs. Do you have to pay like yearly or monthly? I mean, well, yes, but you know what? That's actually the cheap part. It's like two hundred bucks a year to store it. It's better than a you know U-Haul. Yeah. Also, you say it's eleven thousand dollars in the beginning, but it, that's cheaper than if you are going through all this. For, you were describing your girlfriend. All the fertility stuff is very expensive too. I mean, it's you, really true. It's really yeah. true. And also, I have a friend who uh, froze her eggs at the same place I did, but she's a very smart woman, and she sought out the drugs uh, through a European buyer. She, I don't know if she did it on the internet or if she actually flew to Europe and bought the drugs there, which ended up costing less even than buying the drugs in the U.S. Because in, the, in Europe, you know, insurance covers all of fertility treatments. And so she bought the drugs for something like a third of the price here. So that made a big difference. So you have eggs that are good to go if you want to. Sure. They're in the freezer. My mom named them all. There's like 15 of them. She gave me baby names for all of them. <laughs> You've already <laughs> named your eggs. That's right. She was very excited. She really, really wants to be a grandmother and really any, she would have been happy if I came home with a Russian baby. Yeah. (laughs) So, and if you didn't want to carry the baby, then they could be put in a surrogate as well, right? Well, sure, but I would do it, right? Why not? How old are you? I'm 40. Turning 41 this month. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) I've stayed alive a lot of years. I've done it. And I would imagine now, I mean, you're married. Of course, you met your husband a few years ago. But still, you, you, you'll never have those regrets that many people do, kind of we're going full circle, that like I, I'm waiting to, you know, I had my kids and I have my job, but I'm waiting till we can travel together, and sometimes that never comes. And it also, if you wait to travel and do what you did, as you describe all this stuff in your book, you don't have the freedom to do it in the same way, number one. And some of the stuff you can't do in the same way when you're 45 or 50 that you can do when you're 30, like, climbing mountains in Tibet or doing what you have to do or not having running water and all those kinds of things. Yeah, you really, you do grow out of it. And that was, you know, I am so, I am jealous in so many ways of the people who found their spouse young, are happy that they found him, are happy in their marriage. They are so peaceful and delighted. They know how they feel about things like 
God and their mother and their choices. God bless their piece of mind. I would love to be like them. You know, that's not who I am. That's not who I was. And I do, yeah, I do feel like I know that I lived everything I wanted to live. And, you know, everybody can't take the path I took. I live a, a really fortunate life, but everybody can look into themselves and think, do I, am I doing this because it feels like it's time and I'm worried that if I don't do it now, it won't happen? Or am I doing this because I want to do it, i.e. settle down and make babies? You know, if, you, you never want to work out of fear. And I felt like the kind of meta, the parallel of taking a trip by yourself is that we're all living by ourselves, really. That, you know, that the, the, the act of being brave and getting on a plane by yourself and not knowing where it's going to take you, I feel like is a really good exercise for when you're making your life choices and thinking about making a life choice that isn't on that road to the place where you think you're supposed to go and not knowing where that life choice is going to take you and just honoring it and enjoying yourself and having fun. I feel like hedonism has a bad tinge to it, but aren't we here to enjoy and be happy and eat and drink and be merry? You know, I I, I think we are. I agree with you. And I think it does, uh, what you just said just moment ago is it does add to your confidence level. I mean, it it translates into lots of different areas. I mean, you're talking about traveling and getting on a plane and not knowing where you're going to go, but it may be taking on a new job that you are, yeah. you don't know where you're going to go with that. So, I mean, it's not just that you have to travel, but those experiences really do add to the your ability to kind of make interesting, exciting choices and kind of taking different paths. I agree. I agree. It, it made me, I started to notice after enough years that nothing bad was happening to me. I mean, you know, travel disasters, whatever, but like nothing really tragic or awful was happening to me out in the world by myself. And, you know, I also started eating dinners alone in Los Angeles, which I hadn't known how to do before, or going to a museum by myself and using my city as, you know, as though it were a foreign place that I was adventuring in. And, and I think it's things that sometimes women are afraid to do because they're afraid they'll look like losers being out by themselves. And it just gives you the sense of confidence. And I realized whatever my spidey sense is that I was born with or, or given by my mother, it's there. You know, it's, it's making me not walk down the wrong alley or, or into the wrong car. And, and I'm so, it made me so grateful for that, and it made me trust that I have it. And so when decisions needed to be made here at home, I care the man thinks that. You know, we have to go. I went way beyond the time because I'm just fascinated with your whole story. So, oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Kristen Newman. Uh, what I was doing while you were breeding, go to her website, theotherkristennewman.com, for more information about her and her travels. Thank you. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And I uh, hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.